The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome to you all. This is another live Clubland Q&A here at Stein Online. I am not, contrary to popular belief, Mark Stein. I am his Canadian compatriot, Andrew Lawton, filling in for an hour of uh, top sub... Well, not top rate. We're kind of like the second shelf from the top rate on substitute guest host level question answering, but I will do my very best to take whatever humdingers you want to throw my way on a range of topic. I know oftentimes there is a tendency for the Canadians in the audience to want me to pontificate on Canadian matters and for the non-Canadians to want me to demystify Canadian matters, but feel unshackled by geography. I try to keep my finger on the pulse of at least a few parts of the world and will try to answer your questions accordingly. I mean, maybe if you ask me about, you know, whatever the local uh, domestic affairs are in, uh, you know, Eswatini, I might not have the answers immediately. But uh, to be honest, I would rather be living in Eswatini than Canada, the way things are going with Justin Trudeau. But in keeping with tradition here, where I am in Eastern Daylight Time in North America, it is just after 3.02 p.m. on Friday. However, it is also important, I believe, to honor those in different time zones. And I uh, deviate from Mark on this. I believe that we should also talk talk about those who are uh, before us, and uh, I'm not going to be an East Coast supremacist here, so it is uh, Friday at 7.02 a.m. on Baker Island, and it is 9.02 this morning in Honolulu, 11.02 in Juneau, Alaska, uh, 1.02 p.m. in Calgary, one of my favorite cities, also 1.02 in Inuvik. If you are, I mean, you're not allowed to say uh, Eskimo anymore, but if you're up in northern, northern, northern Canada... We welcome you here, nonetheless. Uh, flying across, well, no, let's. We got to do Newfoundland because it's uh, 4:32 in Newfoundland with the half-hour time zones, and in Budapest, 9:02 p.m. Friday night. Hope you are surviving the horrendous heat waves that we're told are just ravaging Europe right now. Uh, which, as a Canadian, I would actually welcome a heat wave most of the year. Uh, it is uh, just after midnight in Ashgabat and 12:48 in Kathmandu because, again, the quarter-hour time. Time zones for you uh, crazy Nepalese partiers over there. Uh, we have 202, uh, 2.03 a.m. in Bangkok, 3.03 in Manila, and we skip ahead in uh, Kiridamati, where it is 9.03 a.m. on Saturday morning. So I hope you're enjoying yourself wherever you are. It is my great privilege to be with you, and I'm just going to apologize uh, first and foremost if you hear any just loud, sudden, abrupt noises. 
I, I've tried to provide some level of sound treatment to my home studio, but it's not uh, completely soundproof. And as it happens, uh, today is the day that my wife and I are having a whole bunch of windows installed, which if you've tried to have any work done in any point in the last few months, you'll know that it's very difficult sometimes because there are shortages of supplies and whatnot. Uh, so we ordered these windows, I don't know, like three months ago. And at the time it was uh, whatever day, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll give you a call when we have the windows. And, and come and install them. And it was, you know, three months later or so. And uh, that happened to be today. And I was hoping it might be wrapped up by the time this Q&A started, but that has not happened. So I believe we are past like the really aggressive drilling and hammering phase of it. But every now and then when you think that's happening, uh, you get a sudden jolt back into the reality that noise is upon you. So uh, I've uh, not keeled over at my desk. If you hear a loud thud and the show will go on regardless, but that's the, the reason for it uh, preemptively but now that maybe now Murphy's Law will dictate that I've warned you about it so we won't actually have to hear it at all. Uh, one question, actually, we get two questions on the same topic right now. One is from Elisa Angel, who writes, have you seen the new Barbie movie? If so, what did you think and would you recommend it? It's getting good to middling reviews from what I see online, but whose reviews can you trust these days? Well, you can trust Rick McGinnis's, although I don't know if he's done the Barbie movie yet. Uh, Matt also writes, Barbie seems to be the latest battleground in in the culture wars, what seems to be by all accounts an anti-male piece of propaganda became a box office hit before anyone noticed. It seemed so innocuous as opposed to some films that push their wokeness long before their release. Any thoughts on the movie or the controversy, at least. So this may not shock you, because I told you that I am a huge ABBA fan last week, so uh, let's just go all in on this. I actually did see the Barbie movie. Now, I, I can't even say I saw it because I wanted to do this level of journalistic intrigue or because I fancy myself a, a film reviewer, a critic uh, myself. In fact, I don't actually know when the last time I saw a movie in theaters was. It, it, I don't even know if I've been in the midst of like since the COVID era. So it, it's certainly been a couple of years anyway. And I, I didn't go as a journalist. I went as a husband, which is my first and foremost role. But my wife wanted to see the movie. And I figured it would have been a useful investment of my time so that when, you know, the next, you know, big heist movie comes out, I can say, well, I went to the Barbie thing. So you have to come to this one with me. Any, any married men will know that probably won't work out in my favor, but one can hope. But I did actually go on Saturday. So I didn't get to talk about it on the show when I was guest hosting last Friday. But I went in, admittedly, with very, very, very low expectations. I, I realized that in this day and age, uh, if a young boy plays with a Barbie, uh, they just get like transitioned into being a young girl. So uh, fortunately, I never had that issue. I, I wasn't playing with Barbies when I was younger. So I, I didn't necessarily have the inside jokes and inside understanding of the world of Barbie like some of the viewers would. But I, I still go in knowing full well that what I'm about to see is going to be in some way preachy. That was the sense that I had going in. And and, and I, that absolutely it was at times. They, you know, unironically use the word patriarchy more times than I can count. But I also don't want to go down the road that a lot of these other, you know, capital C conservative types have done, certainly in the U.S., and say that, you know, Barbie is this assault on masculinity and Barbie is this, you know, prescriptive wokeness and Barbie this and Barbie that and, oh, you know, everyone needs to boycott it and all of that. 
And, and I say that for two reasons. Number one, because we would not have many options if we tried to just completely hive off any form of arts or entertainment that had a political message distinct from ours. We just would have nothing left to watch. So I, I tend to have a bit more, I, I offer a bit more latitude than perhaps some conservatives do for the types of stories in which I will immerse myself as a consumer. But the other part is that I actually don't think the criticisms are completely and entirely fair. And here's where I, I don't want to accuse the Barbie movie of doing more than it was supposed to do, because I, I think that my real takeaway that was positive from it might have even been unintentional. But the premise of the movie, I mean, the, the movie was all over the map. I mean, just from a plot perspective, it had its issues. But the premise of the movie is that there starts to be this weird sort of relationship between Barbie land and the real world, in, in which Barbie land, which has always been this feminist utopia that's been hived off from the real world of patriarchy, uh, starts having this strange connection, and, you know, Barbie escapes from Barbie land into the real world and is mortified to learn that women are not running the Supreme Court and running corporations and running the White House because she's used to this land of the, you know, weird sort of effeminate a male Ken's running around, and in the real world, they're shocked to have uh, Barbie disrupt the space-time continuum. Like I said, not like cinematic brilliance here, but anyway, so what ends up happening is Ken leaves Barbie land, and Ken learns that, oh wow, in the real world, men actually get to have some power, which men do not have in Barbie land. So then he brings this information back to Barbie land, and before you know it, it's all, you know, toxic masculinity all the time. The Kens are running the show, the Kens are doing the big male bravado thing, and so obviously you can see how some people take this position that Matt does, that this is this anti-male thing. But at a certain point, it, it actually kind of mocks both sides of this debate. I mean, there, there's one point where I actually found quite clever, which is that, you know, Ken, who's played by Ryan Gosling, who's actually from my city of London, Ontario, is sort of under the belief that you can be in charge of anything just because you're a man. So he goes into a hospital and is demanding to perform a surgery because he's a man. And they say, well, no, you don't actually get to do that without a medical degree. And then he goes into a corporate office and says, well, I'm a man. I, I want to be in charge. And they say, well, no, you can't do that without an MBA. So it, it actually sort of mocks in some way that idea that patriarchy alone is the, the driving force behind society. But the thing about the Barbie movie that I, I found the most delightful is that it reinforced, and I'd say did so in a more black and white way than anything else in the current era, the idea of a difference between men and women. The, the whole point of the movie was based on this binary between men and women that we have been told in virtually every other forum imaginable politically through the media does not exist. But in Barbie land, women are all pink and fashionable and stylish and they like their clothes and they do their hair and they're all pretty and men are strong, tough. And, and the movie actually accepts as its core premise the fundamental difference between men and women. And, and that's actually the fascinating part about this, is, is how does Barbie, because the director, Greta Gerwig, was trying to make a, a feminist film and a feminist point. So how do you do that in an era in which women ceases to mean anything? Women, the word, women, woman, ceases to mean anything. And 
you can't actually do that. You can't have a message about the importance of women and the liberation of women if women do not exist. So the movie has to just assert that there is such a thing as a woman. And, and it doesn't go out of its way to do this, but, but just it is the base premise of the movie because otherwise you can't have a movie about womanhood and about femininity. And I, I thought that was unintentionally a real win for people generally on the right, but not exclusively, that have been talking for years about how, you know, comical it is when a, a Supreme Court nominee gets in front of a committee and, you know, is asked what a woman is and says, I'm not a biologist. Well, in Barbie land, there's no such ambiguity. There is no such confusion. I think everyone in Barbie land can answer the question of what is a woman. So uh, whether intentionally or not, I actually think that is something about the movie that was very positive. But I, look, there are, there are issues with it, absolutely. I didn't go in looking for high art. I certainly didn't come out of it thinking that I had embraced or enjoyed high art. Uh, but I, I also think a lot of the people that tried to find something sinister in it we're looking a little bit too hard. That's that's all I would take from that. Uh, Kelly Harbison writes, Andrew, the weather authorities have declared this July to be the hottest ever, ignoring the heat waves of 1898 and the 1930s and 40s. What have you to say about this obviously misleading report? You know, there's a, a gentleman who I actually know personally who's been quite strong on a lot of the climate stuff, and his name is Dr. Christopher Essex, and he's a, a mathematics professor who has always been different than some of the other so-called global warming skeptics because a lot of the times the so-called deniers, the skeptics, will get together and say, oh, well, the world's not actually warming, and oh, if you, knew, if you look at this graph, it's not actually uh, doing what they say it is, and oh, these are models and not graphs. Whereas he's always gone back to the first principles and say, what is this thing called a global temperature? And Chris Essex has always been very good on that point of, of actually refuting that there's such a thing as an average global temperature. He's like, are we are we measuring the summer in Australia against the winter in the United States? Are we measuring all points? What time of day? What like? And he's pointed out just that the calculations of this have always been so utterly flawed. And I think what Kelly is getting at here is that whenever we want to make a point that something is so terrible, so bad, you can conveniently find a way to analyze temperature to make whatever point you're trying to make. And the cartoonish aspect of this is that it doesn't matter what phenomenon is happening in the world, climate change is responsible. If it's a sunny day, it's because it's climate change. If it's a windy day, it's because it's climate change. If it's hot out, if it's cold out, if it's cold, then hot, if it's anything, it is something to do with climate change. And and they've gotten so used to doing this that they love the superlatives. They love being able to say the hottest day ever, the most stormy day ever, the worst wildfire ever. But to do so, they have to manipulate the numbers. They have to massage the numbers. One might even say they have to molest the data. And they do it because that's the only way to do so. And, and no one has ever really from this side, from the alarmist side, answered how they were fear-mongering not that many years ago about global cooling and about the impending ice age 
and have now turned around to telling us about how dangerous global warming is. And I, I should have actually loaded up the clip. I know it's supposed to be an organic Q&A show, so if I come in with pre-fired audio clips, you'd uh, just question the entire authenticity and uh, flexibility of the format. But I, I suspected it would come up, and I'll bring it up now. Uh, Antonio Guterres, who was like a complete and utter left-wing Marxist failure of a prime minister in Portugal and is now the United Nations Secretary General, you can tell is getting a little unhappy that the UN rhetoric on this and the UN narrative on climate change is not actually landing with people the way it's supposed to. Because he was doing some, you know, again, doom and gloom thing yesterday in which he declared that the era of global warming is over. So I heard that and I was like, oh, great. You know, we're done with global warming. We, we emerged victorious. We carbon taxed our way into the obliteration of global warming. But then the sentence went on and he said it's because the era of global boiling is with us. So we have now gone, we, we, uh, we're kind of at global warming and I thought we would actually get to a global parboil before we got to a, a boil, but we've actually gone past parboil and we are at a full-fledged boil right now. It'll be a, a supercharged uh, mega boil. It'll be, what's the, what's the word? I, I cook, I should know this word. It's the, uh, a rolling boil. We'll, we'll be at a global rolling boil uh, before long when, you know, we just add a little sprinkle of salt and some extra globe and mail, uh, some extra globe and mail rhetoric. I was looking at that one article in the Canadian paper in which they put on their front page. No, it wasn't the globe. It was the, uh, the Toronto Star, the front page that we are now global boiling. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So I've, I've just, I've just looked enough recipes now, seeing if there are any other terms we can do. We've, uh, we'll do a rolling boil next. So when this fails to attract the level of attention it's supposed to, uh, we'll ratchet up from there, and then it'll be, you know, global sublimation or something as we just turn from the liquid to the gas. Like, but, but that's so sciency. It's like they're they're kind of taking a page out of the COVID playbook here, in which they have to just start coming up with new names for things. That like global boiling is the Omicron variant. Like, it's just this thing that you say that just terrifies people or the, the double mutant Indian variant or whatever, where it's like just trying to elicit a level of fear because the previous fear-mongering that's led us up to this point has evidently not done the job. <laughs> The Notorious Mr. J writes, Let's hope Mark can arise from his Italian hospital bed quick time. The opportunistic garment rending about recent heat waves should remind one and all that you, the little guy, the green surfer in the crosshairs of the green nobility's totalitarian lust. Ooh, that's just poetry, Mr. J. Our overlords have totalitarian power grabs over our lives in mind. Yet few appear to notice or care, and their serene majesties seem oblivious to the principle of the fatal conceit. Central planning failed miserably in the hands of the Reds, and the Greens are bound to make a hash of it, too. Well, I think you're obviously on to a great deal of this there, Mr. J, or Mr. I guess Notorious is, uh, I'll use the familiar first name, Notorious. Here's the thing, though. When they talk about central planning, they never use the language of central planning because they don't want to actually admit what it is they're doing. They talk about emergencies. They talk about crisis. They talk about cooperation. They talk about this as though it's the natural order of things. Because if they come out and say 
that this is central planning and this is big government. This is everything that Hayek proved through his body of work doesn't work. They know that people will, at least in, in large enough numbers, start raising questions about, well, why do you think you can central plan your way out of a crisis now when you have never once done it? And in fact, central planning typically inflames and exacerbates crises. And I think what's going to happen here in perpetuity is they're going to just use whatever language has been proven to be effective. And, and COVID broke the world. And it's quite tragic because, you know, I remember how novel it was when, I don't know, maybe it was like May or June of 2020, my wife and I were just sitting at home because it was, you know, illegal to go anywhere else. And I had said, you know, do you think COVID or 9-11 has been more influential and has been more, has had more of an effect on the world. And I, I was very firmly on 9-11 as being the greater event. And, and my wife, a very astute woman that she is, said it was COVID. And at the time, I, I thought, well, you know, you're wrong. I see the argument, but no, it's absolutely not. 9-11. 9-11 has changed the world more than this COVID thing ever has. And, and I, I probably held to that for maybe a couple of more months, maybe even a year or so. Now, absolutely, she was right, I was wrong. COVID has changed the world far more than 9-11 will. And, and when I say that, I am fully aware of the consequences of 9-11. I'm fully aware of, of setting in motion the war on terror, of setting in motion some of the earlier assaults on civil liberty, of the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war. And even with these seismic changes... I think COVID has had more of an effect on the hearts and minds of society uh, and the individuals in it. And COVID has also had much more of an empowering effect on government. I mean, there are things that governments did to fight COVID that they would never have been able to get away with doing to fight terrorism. And things that were similar in nature were met with far more resistance when they were doing it to fight terrorism than they were doing to fight COVID. I mean, just imagine if we had the level of snitch lines and bans on assembly and violations of civil liberties to fight Islamic terror as we did during COVID. I mean, probably uh, you could make a case that maybe it would have been more effective at one thing or another, but the point is we didn't. So government got away with a lot more under COVID than it did after 9-11. And the lives lost due to lockdowns, due to restrictions, the lives lost to suicide and drug addiction and domestic violence have outweighed dramatically the 3,000 casualties of 9-11. And I'm not doing this whataboutism thing. I'm not saying one is worse than the other, and I'm not diminishing the loss nor diminishing the significance of 9-11. I'm just pointing out that COVID broke the world. And COVID did that in many ways, but one of the key ways, and germane to Mr. J's question here, is giving government a roadmap for doing anything that otherwise would seem absurd or untenable or more contentious. And when they so clearly and brazenly use the language of COVID to justify climate measures. I, I mean, like the whole premise of the Great Reset was that we want to take the world and the ash heap into which it's uh, descended and rebuild the world we want, the world we wanted before, but we're never able to get. That was what Klaus Schwab wants, and that's what's an what Antonio Guterres wants, and that's what all these globalist folks want, and they were never quite able to do. 
because it's a lot easier to build something from scratch than to repair or tweak something else. So uh, they completely went along with the destruction of the world as we know it. They furthered it along because that was the only way they had the ashes from which they could build their model society. And, you know, to say something like this even a couple of years ago, I think would have been met with more, oh yeah, this is conspiracy theorizing, than now, whereas I've always said yesterday's conspiracy theory is today's government press release. But they did this, and they continue to do this. And things that they would have tried to do on climate stuff a few years ago that wouldn't have flown is now entirely commonplace. And, and when you hear this language of global boiling, what they're doing is they're setting, the, they're setting up the argument that this is going to be a critical, dire, life-threatening emergency, the kind of which we have as a society now permitted them to act in unconscionable ways to rein in and to deal with and to respond to. And that's precisely what's happening here. Scott Scherzer writes... Dear Andrew, it was a pleasure meeting you and your wife while cooling off in the swimming pool during the Stein at Sea cruise. The world, unfortunately, hasn't gotten any saner since we debarked. Uh, Joe Biden is doing his best to see that Donald Trump isn't the only person running in 2024 to be indicted. If it weren't for the corruption in the FBI and the Department of Justice, the entire Biden clan would have been frog-marched by now. How long do you think the media can continue to ignore the Biden crime family before they lose what little credibility they have remaining? Please give Mark my best and continue to do a bang-up job hosting in his absence. Sincerely, Scott Scherzer of Miami Beach. Well, thank you very much, Scott, and I know Mark is greatly appreciative of all the messages he's received from Mark Stein Club members and the broader Stein Online community in his absence. Fortunately, we have all those great shows from the cruise, which we are publishing, and you'll be able to watch and and for those who were on the cruise relive and for those who weren't enjoy for the first time but on the trump and biden stuff i i like kathy shadel who i had the opportunity to know very well and and uh, miss so dearly never had much time for the pointing out of hypocrisy that is so easy to do. And I, I'm guilty of it myself to be like, oh, well, you know, the media says this about Donald Trump, but when Joe Biden does it, they say nothing and all of that. And, and you know, she basically summed it up into a very simple point, which is liberals, it's different when they do it. And it was when she first said that to me, it was an unsatisfying answer, but it, it sort of grew more satisfying over time because it was the only real explanation. You can't expect shame from the shameless. You can't expect self-awareness from people that are blissfully unaware and are okay with that or are self-aware but know that no one else is going to point it out. And, and that's why there's never been a need for the left to really conceal Joe Biden. I mean, the Kennedys, you know, did horrible things to hide their problematic family members or ones they thought were problematic. The Bidens don't need to do that with Hunter because they know that they can get away with it. They know that Hunter Biden can be a degenerate, drug-using, hooker-hiring, uh, you know, corrupt. Like, like the personal stuff is not even the problem. It's the, the financial corruption in that family. But they know it doesn't matter. 
they know it doesn't matter. They know that uh, Don Trump Jr., if he were to get a jaywalking ticket, would have been this immoral figure in politics. But, you know, Hunter Biden can snort whatever off of a, you know, young prostitutes, whatever. And it's, oh, well, he's a troubled guy, but look at how nice it is that his dad, Joe, is standing by him despite all his issues. And, oh, look at these photos of the two hugging each other on the magazine. Oh, wow, such a such a beautiful all-American family. And it's like, there's no explanation for that. And, and the thing that I, I find, I don't know if comforting is the right word, but when you learn what the media is capable of looking away from... Nothing really surprises you when they when you learn what they're prepared to pretend isn't there. And and the Hunter Biden laptop story is probably one of the most incredibly useful examples of this because you saw just a, a deliberate deliberate effort to look away. When everyone in the world wanted to look at it, the media said, "Nope, nope, we're we're just not going to go along with this. That we're we're going to pretend it doesn't exist, and we're going to keep up this lie until after the election, and that's that." And the media has had none of this desire, none of this inquisitive nature when it comes to learning who the big guy is. You know, ten percent for the big guy. Who's the big guy? Ten percent of what? Why? Oh, that? No, no, no. That's, uh, you know. But oh, Donald Trump. I mean, this is why they're still relitigating the whole Donald Trump stuff four years later because they the only way they can keep the attention off of Joe Biden is to create this boogeyman, and that boogeyman continues to be for them Donald Trump. Let's see what else we have here. Ross Spence asks a, a very similar question. The Republican Nixon campaign had to go through the trouble of forming Creep, the Committee for the Re-Election of the President, to perform the Watergate break-in. The Democrat-Biden campaign cut out the middlemen. <laughs> the Biden team just instructs the U.S. Department of Justice to eliminate opponents and cover up any issues like Hunter Biden on the Biden side. I'm glad that the political hack Merrick Garland is not on the Supreme Court. Yeah, like I said, I mean, we, we've made it so easy for them. We, we've made it so easy. Woodward and Bernstein, where are the, the Woodward and Bernsteins of the Biden era? It's certainly not coming from the mainstream press in the U.S., Eric Dale writes, Andrew, have we in the West fundamentally lost the ability to self-correct our society? There used to be a line in politics, throw the bums out. Yet in major American cities, especially one party rule has been the norm for decades, even as conditions considerably deteriorate. The media absolutely refuses to report factually true information if it contradicts or refutes the preferred narrative. Some recent examples here in America being the lab leak theory, the Hunter Biden laptop story, and now the very real possibility that Joe Biden has been taking bribes from various foreign governments, including Ukraine's. Yet it is more likely than not that his re-election is reassured, as Justin Trudeau's hold in Canada hasn't inspired a conservative revival either. Are we past the event horizon? I, I think so. And I, I wish I had the poll numbers handy, but there was a, a poll that I, I was reading just yesterday in which they talked about... Now, this was a, a poll of Canadians, so take it with a, a grain of uh, poutine here. But it was basically a, a poll that was asking people if they thought political change was possible, and if so, what the best vehicle for it was. And 
they gave people options. One is, you know, change at the ballot box. One is appending the global elites. One is, you know, and, and so on and so forth. And, and there was no violent revolution, but they sort of did say mass protest and civil disobedience. That was an option. And, and most people in this Canadian context thought that, yes, change was possible and democracy was still the best vehicle for that. Now, I actually found that I, I'm kind of mixed on it. On the one hand, I found it encouraging because you don't want a society in which people feel that uh, that the system is so broken in which they they are unable to do anything through the system. But uh, on the flip side, it's like you also need people to realize the brokenness of the system. And you know, maybe it's you know 80% broken, maybe it's 40% broken. Like you can debate about how broken it is, but you also don't want people to just be completely deluded into thinking that when you have uh, effectively one party rule in a lot of areas, that everything is hunky-dory. And, and I think that's been one of the more concerning things, because I, I used to be a partisan. I mean, like anyone else in, involved in politics, when you first start reading about politics and deciding this is something you're interested in, you, or I, in my case anyway, attach myself to a party. And you do that because you think that's the way you achieve political change. And, you know, I had the misfortune once of, of running in an election. That was in 2018. And I, I'm so glad in retrospect that I was not successful because I, I know just how ineffectual I, I would have been able to be uh, when I looked at the system in which I, I would have been operating. But all of that is to say that it's a lot easier when you sort of shed that preconception that, that a party is a vehicle for, for change, at least in a, a North American context. And I would say certainly in the UK and Australia, political parties, the, the ones that are within arm's reach of power are not really doing all that much that, that's helpful. And I say then as a former partisan that it's a lot harder to find optimism when you look around and you see there's no one, there's no one that's speaking up on the issues that matter to you, or there's no one that's speaking up in your perspective. And I've I told this story, I don't know if I've told it on the Q&A, but I, I've certainly talked about it on my show. There was this situation in the 2021 Canadian election. So this was an election in the midst of the COVID pandemic and the restrictions and all of that, in which shortly before a debate, all of the party leaders that were in the debate got together in some, you know, empty hotel ballroom and they recorded a PSA in which they told everyone to get vaccinated. And it was Justin Trudeau, the liberal leader, the conservative leader, the socialist leader, the Quebec separatist leader. They all got together, the Green Party leader, they all got together and did this PSA saying get vaccinated. And the, the proposition was that, you know, this is not a partisan issue. This is not political. We're all together. Now, imagine if you're one of the, at the time, maybe the 12 or 13% of Canadians that weren't vaccinated, and you're looking at this, and you're seeing, you know, everyone from the angry Quebec separatist to the eco-freak to the socialist to the liberal to the supposed conservative is literally following the same script. How are you going to feel like the system cares about you? And it's not about who's right or who's wrong. It's just about democratic legitimacy here. How are you going to feel if you're one of those people like you have a voice in government, in politics, in the political system, in the political class, regardless of the outcome of that election? 
And, and I don't think there was ever any concern about that from political leaders. And in fact, they went the opposite direction. They tried to stress how, oh, their pandemic response was a Team Canada approach. And oh, yes, the Liberals and the Conservatives were all working together and they were rolling up their sleeves and, and doing the heavy lifting. And I mean, a lot of this was just complete nonsense. They were not working together. They weren't getting along. They weren't having a grand old time. And they had some pretty key disagreements, but they all kind of, were committing to this lie that they needed to project a, a unified front, which I, I get in you know times of war. Yes, it's uh, helpful to not have partisan bickering, but it's also very dangerous to not have anyone that's prepared to speak up and say no. I'm actually not going along with this. And, and no, there are Canadians who are not being represented here. And that was not, I mean, the, the story about the PSA is a Canadian one. But the overall trend I'm describing there was not limited to Canada. This existed in pretty much every single Western country. And maybe you could say, oh, well, in Florida it was a bit better, in Sweden it was a bit better. But for the most part, the political class abandoned. Opposition parties abandoned their mandate to oppose. And when you had opposition that did not exist or was ineffectual at best, you then had governments that were given complete and utter free reign. And I, I realize this is like I, I've taken the kernel of your question and just run so far away from the exact uh, wording of it here. So to bring it back in, when, when you ask Eric about, you know, the lab leak theory, the Hunter Biden laptop story, Joe Biden, all of this stuff, it's that there is this disconnect between real world consequences of politicians and their actions and what those people are actually doing and what they think and what they feel and, and how they operate. And, and when you have that disconnect, when what exists for people in the real world does not exist in the political world, there is no incentive to be grounded in reality. They don't have to talk about the facts of where COVID came from. They don't have to talk about the facts of Hunter Biden's degeneracy because they can just sort of set up their own rules. And as we've seen in the Trudeau case, just completely vilify anyone who dares speak out against the ruling class. Uh, we have a, a couple of questions, it looks like, about the UFO thing. Now, I admit, I've seen the tweet. I, I've seen the tweet and the clip that supposedly referenced uh, UFO stuff. I haven't actually seen the clip yet, so I'll, I'll have to defer on this one until I can uh, immerse myself in that story a little bit more. But uh, I have not yet seen any UFO activity in Canada, although I did see like a weird-looking alien guy prancing around a couple of years ago in a Bollywood outfit in India, but I'm told that was actually just Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and he uh, can't blame being an extraterrestrial. That's just him being him. Uh, John Fachi writes, Best wishes to Mark on his recovery. The global elite is extraordinarily ambitious. One wonders who will be around to maintain their taste for luxury following their planned mass starvation. I've concluded in my mind that the only motivation for the Ukraine war is to eliminate the farmland. Lack of food sourcing seems to be the only common thread between the climate change initiatives, the farmland spoiled by wind and solar, and this war without good guys. Another misshapen piece to the puzzle is AI. The samples put forth on the greatness of AI are amazingly unimpressive. No one will really read an AI novel to properly critique it. The art in it, the art it creates lacks humanity. Knowing what we know about the hapless global elite in light of the Theranos hoax, will the 21st century fable be the emperor's new technology? 
Aren't they just blowing smoke because they expect that those who know better will soon be eliminated? I, I feel there are like four or five questions, or at least four or five big topics there condensed into one long post. Uh, but I, I think there's a lot of good stuff there, John, and I'll, I'll try to answer at least a few of these things. Uh, for starters, I don't think the mass starvation is going to affect the elites. The the whole thing is that we eat crickets so they eat to they can continue to eat their steaks. It's not that they're in the trenches with us at the Golden Corral eating whatever the organic lab-grown, you know, bug soup on the menu is. So I'm not actually worried about that one because they're going to look after themselves and, you know, our needs and desires are disconnected from theirs. The AI stuff I actually find quite interesting because I'm I'm kind of like you, John, in which I, I feel a lot of this has been overblown and, and you have AI being presented to us as being a lot more capable than it is. But at the same time, I also think we're foolish if we don't know that it's going somewhere and that it's going to get better. And, you know, when you have professors right now that are saying, I'm not worried about AI generated essays because the essays are just complete and utter crap. It's manufacturing facts. It's manufacturing data. It's not actually creating something that's rooted in reality. Now, I mean, many of their student assignments probably aren't doing that anyway. But I, I've had some fun with this. You know, there's this one program called Midjourney, which you can make an AI-generated uh, image. And, and sometimes, if it has a lot to draw on, it can create something that looks like a realistic photograph that conceivably could have been taken. Other times, it creates something a lot more cartoonish. So I've, you know, tried to have some fun with it. I, I made a, an image of, you know, Justin Trudeau being pushed on a swing by, you know, Daddy Fidel Castro. And I was all excited. And then it gave me like Justin Trudeau pushing Justin Trudeau on a swing or Fidel Castro pushing Fidel Castro. I couldn't quite get the prompt to give me the gag that I, that I wanted to get out of that. Now, in a year, if I'm still fiddling around with this stupid program, maybe it'll give me something better. The text AI, I think, is a little bit more sophisticated, but not much. It, it still is not doing exactly what people are describing. But I, I think the fear here, and, and where I'm more pessimistic than you are, that people will reject AI-generated art, is that we are tolerating low expectations. I mean, I've had this concern in, in recent years where, I mean, everyone knows it's impossible to get like a human on the phone if you call tech support or whatever for something. But the other problem that we have is that you are trying to get some form of online help or find an email address, and it wants you to talk to these AI chatbots. But they're not even AI. They're these virtual assistants that are basically like programmed to draw words from what you're saying and then direct you to the website that you could have already read yourself uh, because they assume that you're too stupid to have done so. And it's, you know, you go and say, I'm having an issue with my uh, cell phone coverage and it's, we'll talk to Emily, the virtual assistant. And I say, well, I'm actually done with the virtual assistant. I have already looked up your tutorial and it's given me absolutely nothing. So let's just get on with it and, and connect me to a person. But we all have such low expectations. I mean, I mentioned earlier on in the show, the Barbie movie and you know, I'd be hard pressed to come up with a way in which an AI generated script that was based off of analyzing the scripts of movies I liked 
wouldn't create something more enjoyable to me than the Barbie movie because a lot of movies certainly follow a formula and that doesn't mean they don't have their own ways to break the formula and to distinguish themselves and make themselves unique but but they follow a formula and I think absolutely a machine could learn that I mean what were the Harlequin romance novels but basically Mad Libs that was just mass produced and you change the names and you change the particular fetishes and you know change the you know, the heath on which, you know, the two lovers embrace and, you know, boom, you've got a new book every three minutes that you can pop out. And and I don't actually think, uh, because of how low the standards are of our era for human-generated so-called art, that AI-generated art would actually be uh, that much worse or or that much less recognizable. But I, I think it'll come down to expectations. We've seen how much people will put up with. We've seen people that will put up with, you know, flights being delayed three days, people that will put up with bags that don't make it to your destination, people that will put up with, you know, customer service that is non-existent. So if you don't think people will put up with crappy AI-generated worlds, I I think you are a little bit more hopeful. I mean, I I saw a story, I don't know if I have it up, but it's in the new, I think it was in Vice or something, about some company that's developing a mind-controlled sex toy for men. So you can actually, you know, put this thing on your, you know what, and you can just think about what you want it to do and it will do it. And and this is being marketed or developed to be marketed to men uh, as one greater step to avoid men having to engage in real relationships and, and exist in the real world. And it's something that I, I know there's going to be a massive market for because there are people that would love an artificial universe instead of a real universe. And I, I feel this is the epitome of own nothing and be happy. And, and maybe we're not truly happy in the sense of human flourishing, but I think people will be content enough that they'll put up with it. Jeff writes, Andrew, I know you wrote The Freedom Convoy last year, which many, including Mark, speak quite highly of. Any new books in the works? Okay, this question shouldn't have been approved. I, I don't like writing about things because I'm like just terrified of my good ideas being stolen because I only get, you know, like one every five years. I am working on another book right now and I, I can't exactly say the topic yet. I'm, I'm hoping we'll be able to uh, offer a little bit more in the next couple of months. I, I will say, I mean, I've wanted to write a book for, for quite some time and, you know, I don't know, going back maybe 10 years, I had started and I was just so bad at it. I I was just so critical and I was having writer's block and I hated everything I wrote and, and, you know, had this idea that I think was a good idea that, that ultimately just lived too long on the vine and withered away. And and when the Freedom Convoy book came up, uh, the one thing I am is very good at deadlines. So, The Freedom Convoy book was such a a current event and it was so timely that I I had to basically write this entire book, which was uh, just over 40,000 words in a month. And the deadline and pressure from my publisher made it so that I didn't actually have time to second guess myself. So uh, the book that I'm working on now, I have a bit more time with and I've got a few ideas. So I'm actually excited to kind of get into some of these things. But uh, I cannot speak about it in perfect detail just yet, Jeff, but I thank you very much for asking KD writes, uh, Andrew, did you see RFK Jr.'s tweet today that he was denied Secret Service protection by the Biden administration? Considering his family's history, it seems incredibly reckless. It's almost as if they want something to happen. 
Yeah, I mean, the fact that there was even a political side of this in the first place, I, I find very dangerous. I mean, I mean, the idea of politicians directing who gets protection and, and who doesn't, I find to be very concerning. Uh, RFK Jr.'s tweet, I had it up, but I'll, I'll just read it for you. Since the assassination of my father in 1968, candidates for president are provided Secret Service protection, but not me. Typical turnaround time for uh, pro forma protection requests from presidential candidates is 14 days. After 88 days of no response and several follow-ups by our campaign, the Biden administration just denied our request. Secretary Mayorkas says, I have determined that Secret Service protection for Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is not warranted at this time. Our campaign's request included a 67-page report from the world's leading protection firm detailing unique and well-established security and safety risks aside from commonplace death threats. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I find that the United States has a tendency to overprotect its politicians. I, I do find that the Secret Service thing is a point of excess. The fact that, you know, the child of a former president will have a protective detail for however many years now, and I know it's changed is is insane. The fact that, you know, former presidents are protected for life by Secret Service, I, I think is unnecessary, especially at a point at which they are often making in money. If they really wanted, they could bring in private security. But but if you are going to have this system and you're going to have this regime, I, I think it is very foolish to start picking and choosing for very political reasons, who gets it and, and who doesn't. Now, look, I mean, the last thing I want is for something to happen here. And it's, uh, and I think the last thing the Democrats should want is for something to happen, because then it will prove that, you know, the Biden administration neglected to protect a candidate. I, I think what's happening here is not that Biden wants Robert F. Kennedy Jr. to be harmed. I, I think what's happening is they want him to not be seen as legitimate. They don't want him to, because it looks very important when you are walking around and you have like the, you know, the 18 man security detail uh, that's following you around. You look like a very big deal. And I actually don't think Joe Biden wants to give Kennedy any legitimacy. And I, I think that the Biden administration in its own distorted and twisted way here is equating security, this, you know, fundamental premise that's given to, you know, any Tom, Dick, and Harry, who has a fighting chance at even getting a couple of percentage points, they don't want to give any legitimacy or credence that he is a, a real candidate. And, and they're basically going to pretend that this empty husk of a man that is Joe Biden is the lone candidate in the running to be the, the Democrat nominee. And I suspect that's what it is there. Uh, Ken B. writes, I believe it was Laura Rosen Cohen who said recently she thought the trans madness, while far from over, perhaps had hit its high point. What do you think? I mean, this is a dangerous question, Ken, because anytime I think anything is hit a high point, I end up being proven wrong because things get far worse than I thought they would or, th or thought they could. Uh, on the trans issue, it, it's tough. I mean, the one thing that I, I think supports the Laura Rosen Cohen thesis here is that a lot more parents are pushing back now than were even a year ago. And and I, I think that the trans activists really did overplay their hands in, in some key ways. And, and one notable example of this is drag queen story time. Like no one had any issues with drag queens. No one had any issues with 
uh, any of this stuff. And then until they started forcing it on kids in schools and libraries, then even like very tolerant, generally progressive parents were like, okay, you know, maybe, maybe there's a time and a place. And, and saying something like that, you know, yes, I'm not saying we ban or censor, but there's a time and a place for stuff is now seen as utterly hateful and, you know, anti-LGBT. And same as the the gender ideology stuff. Again, I mean, the number of people I've spoken to who are, you know, longtime civil rights activists for gays and lesbians that are saying, okay, come on, let's cool it on the trans stuff here because it's not the same as sexual orientation. It's it's not the same uh, as talking about, oh, you know, yes, if you're attracted to men, you're gay. If you're attracted to women and you're a woman, you're a lesbian. That is not the same as, oh, little Timmy needs to be on hormones because little Timmy, you know, looked at his sister's doll for more than 30 seconds. So this is where I, I do think there is a bit of an overplaying of the hand, but I also think that a lot of the activists have so much invested in this. And I don't know if you saw, but there's a, a detransitioner uh, by the name of Chloe Cole, who is a, a young girl that was sold an absolute lie and, and forced into gender transition at a very young age and has now uh, transitioned back and is a beautiful, beautiful young woman and a very eloquent young woman. And she was speaking before Congress and gave one of the most thoughtful and kind addresses to a woman that thinks detransitioners are, you know, destroying trans kids' lives because they're, you know, telling them not to affirm their gender. And, and she, she gave such a lovely, lovely response to that and said, you know, I understand and I, and I get your fear and I get why you care so much about your children. But she's trying to tell these people, look, this does not make them happy. This does not make the problems you're seeing go away. And that's where the mama bear effect is going to come out here because a lot of parents that are right now being told the only way you protect your children is by going along with this, but, but they're starting to see that doesn't actually make sense. And the, the people that are invested in that though, the doctors, the politicians, the activists, uh, they know that if the tide reverses, if the tide turns back on them, the amount of blood that will be on their hands will be absolutely untenable. And, and that's the thing, is that they need to keep up the lie that this is an appropriate way to treat children. They need to keep it up because otherwise they are going to be held responsible for the lives they've destroyed by forcing irreversible treatments on children. And I, I think if there is, a, as Laura suggests, a high point, that will be the reason. That will be the reason, because people will start to realize that the harms done to children by the activists outweigh the harms done by the parents and other folks who are standing up and saying no. Martin Stark writes, I saw something on the site about the suit against Ofcom. Anything else you can share? Uh, not too, too much about that. I, I do know there is a second suit that's been filed because as you know, Ofcom has found Mark guilty of wrong think on two occasions and one had a cameo from Naomi Wolf and that's the episode at issue in the second suit. So I would encourage you to go and you can actually read it all for yourself online at steinonline.com and I think the, the name of the piece uh, just was up yesterday 
and I can't remember the name of it, but you can go in and read for yourself and I would encourage you to do it. No harm. That's what it is. And uh, see the, the pleading. And, and look, I mean, I, I don't have a lot of experience in the UK court system. I, I tend to be very pessimistic about courts, but I also think this is an incredibly important battle uh, because this is a, a body, Ofcom, that is entirely too powerful. And this is the model that's going to be used by broadcast regulators around the world, where they aren't just regulating, oh, you know, this is the channel that you're going to be on, but this is the thing you can say on that channel, or more importantly, the things you can't say. So I, I think in that sense, it is a very, very important case to watch, and I, I hope you do. Uh, George Pereira writes, Andrew, I'm 72 years old. I have yet to ever use the word patriarchy in a conversation ever. Who talks like that? Well, you just did, George. You just used patriarchy. So it took you 72 years, but you've come around. Uh, you're going to be a, a regular old woke warrior before long. I, no, I, no one normal speaks like that. I, I mean, this is the fascinating thing. I, I was reading on uh, Twitter all day today about this battle that I mentioned briefly in the Q&A last week about a, a gentleman who, a principal in Toronto who ultimately killed himself. And it was a very tragic case because he was in one of these uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, re-education gulags. And he had the temerity to ask his instructor about some of the things that she had brought up about the pervasiveness of, of racism. And then she you know, very frankly, accused him of upholding white supremacy for daring to ask these questions. And then at the next session she did, she held it up as an example and talked about, again, how he's upholding white supremacy. And there was this, you know, stupid column today in the Toronto Star in which uh, someone, this diversity and racial equity columnist or whatever she is, tried to basically defend the diversity re-educator and recast this thing in a light in which the guy who killed himself is not the real victim, but the woman that he asked a question to is the real victim of this. And when you read the quotes from the session, you actually see that there's an entire way of speaking that is not normal and not natural, but this language is actually entirely reasonable in this diversity equity world. And, and, you know, words like patriarchy and stuff like that, which, you know, certainly have a meaning. Yes, they, they have a meaning, they have a context, but, but th there's just a, a way that honestly makes it look like to, to go back to the earlier question about AI, like they're just stringing together a bunch of things in AI and it's very jargony. And, and this is this a normal, natural way of speaking in the woke world. And if you uh, let it sneak up on you, you'll find that it's the way you're speaking as well. Uh, we only have a couple of moments left here. Uh, Fran Lavery writes, Greetings again, Andrew. There are a hundred burning topics to talk about, but it's still quite a mystery to me why we are fighting this proxy war against nuclear armed to the hilt Russia in Ukraine. Uh, in the last week since you were uh, here taking our questions, I have heard Ukraine is winning, Russia's winning, and finally, there has been a stalemate now going on since a failed spring offensive. I don't know how talking about this will help either side. But do you think we've always had just two end games, a resolution with a nuclear bomb going off here or there to end the disputes? Or do you think there could be some entity outside the fray to get the two countries to the peace table? I have heard that both countries at one point in late 2022 were ready to do this, but the U.S. government put the brakes on it. 
Have you seen the new Oliver Stone film just out on Ukraine? I think we never should have promised Ukraine to come into the NATO fold. This seems to have been Putin's catalyst for the invasion. Trying to sort things out is hard when I don't know who to believe anymore. Well, look, I, I get it, Fran. I, I do. And I, I think it's a completely reasonable question. And, and you know, what bothers me on this is that there seems to be this uh, gulf between, you know, complete Ukraine can do no wrong folks and Putin apologists and people that may have a, a nuanced view in between are uh, accused by some side of, of being, you know, some shill for the other side. And it's impossible to have a, a real conversation. Now, look, my position on this is that, you know, Russia is the aggressor. And I, I believe that wholeheartedly. And you can talk about whether foreign countries should be as invested in this as they are. You can talk about how U.S. foreign policy might have led to this. You can talk about how Russia may have felt uh, aggravated by NATO. But at the end of the day, NATO is an alliance. And unlike a lot of these other global institutions, it's a, an, a body that's based on a proposition that is a very appealing one. If you're a country near Russia and you have a history of the Soviet Union trying to conquer you and succeeding in that. And I, I realize I, I'm simplifying a complex and decades-long story, but the point of this is that I understand completely the argument for including Ukraine in NATO because the problem with Ukrainian neutrality is that it guarantees that Ukraine is going to be left in a situation like it's in now, when Russia, which has always had ambitions to uh, retake Ukraine, is there and does not have the protection guarantee from NATO allies. And I, I think that's also been the resistance to including Ukraine in NATO, is that a lot of allies really don't want to be at a war with Russia. And I, I think there's some, some tension on that. So I understand why Ukraine's neutrality, as far as NATO is concerned, is actually a pretty crappy deal for Ukraine. And I get why they want to be a part of it. And I get why a lot of other countries would not want that because of the obligations it would put on them. But the problem is, and I've said this on the Q&As, and I know I've been criticized for it, and I'm not particularly bothered by that, is that I think there are far too many people that are happy to view Putin as being this bulwark against American imperialism while giving him a pass for his own Russian imperialism. And if you want to take the position that this isn't a Western war, that's a completely legitimate one. If you want to take the position that we shouldn't be whitewashing Ukrainian corruption, that's perfectly legitimate. But anyone who says Putin is the good guy here, I, I just don't have time for. Uh, we have time for one more question here. Uh, this is from Toby Pilling, who writes, do you think Nigel Farage's victory over Coots will help Katie Hopkins get a bank account? Well, it, it's possible. And, and look, I, I think that what happened to Nigel is a, a tremendous example of a world that we are all headed towards when no one wants to do business with anyone if they have a political disagreement with them. Because speaking of neutrality, corporate neutrality is no longer allowed. A company can't just hold up its hands and say, I'm a service provider and I don't really care about your politics. Like I, when I was running for office, which I alluded to earlier, I went to this local coffee shop in my riding that I was a candidate in. And I just, you know, posted on Instagram, a picture of my latte and said, you know, here I am at the Black Walnut enjoying it. And then I had people on my Instagram that were tagging the Black Walnut and and calling on them to denounce me, say, you know, you, you have to speak up about, you know, this guy who's in your coffee shop having a coffee and, you know, how dare you allow him to, you know, cross the threshold into your midst. And, and they actually, 
were, were very gracious. They, they responded and said, listen, we don't give, you know, two flying, you know, what's about who is getting our coffee. If they want to come in and enjoy it, they're welcome. And, and that's that. And, and, you know, I, I feel like we need more of that from companies and, uh, there needs to be more of this sense of, listen, it's not our problem who you are as an individual, unless you're using your bank account for crime and we have a legal liability there, uh, we'll, we'll give you a bank account. And, and I, I think that now that these companies have been put on notice, I think Katie Hopkins should go and apply to as many different banks as possible. And if any one of them declines, uh, she should say, all right, pony up the reason as to why. And I think that right now we're in that, that rare moment where we're like when Justin Trudeau froze his critics bank accounts, people, even who are not entirely on side with, you know, the truckers or Nigel Farage are like, eh, maybe, okay, you know, yes, I, I like owning these folks, but maybe I can't quite get on board with this world in which the big banks are going after people for their political beliefs. And again, some folks are going to be entirely happy being punitive with their political enemies, but I think there, there's an area here where they might have just overplayed their hand ever so slightly. That does it for me. We will have uh, this show, if you want to re-listen to it, up on Stein Online in a little bit. And Rick McGinnis will be back with Rick Flicks tomorrow to bring in the weekend and lots more good stuff in the days to come. So thank you for tuning in, everyone. We will talk to you next next time. Mark Stein's Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.